So Rebecca, it's been a while and I was taking a nap today and I woke up and I was still kind of drowsy. So I was looking through Reddit and I came across some subreddits that had to do with therapy and some of the posts that were on there, I thought, well, this would be interesting to talk about. And then it led me to think maybe we should always have a segment in which we read different things on Reddit because I feel like the things that float to the top of my feed are some pretty juicy things to get into. What do you say, Rebecca? Yeah, and I just want to say I missed everyone. I had COVID and then I had long COVID. Now I'm uh, out and about. And if you ever want to find me, I'm on Instagram at rtext, R-T-E-X-T. Yeah. I was also thinking we haven't promoted your art therapy workbooks in a while. Oh. Why don't you plug those? On Amazon, it's funny, it gets really bad reviews, but people actually love it. There are some chakra-based images in there, and all of my kind of first 20 years of art therapy directives are in there. And it's called Square the Circle, the art therapy workbook. I remember when you came on the podcast... 10, 12 years ago and talked about Square the Circle. I thought it was so cool that you actually had a published product on Amazon. All right, this is a Reddit post. It says here, my therapist texted me five minutes before our phone session yesterday to tell me that she was wasted. <laughs> Verbatim, here's what she said. I have to be completely transparent with you. I'm wasted. <laughs> The person goes on to say, my heart sank when I saw this. She's an addict, but has oh. been clean for some time as far as I knew. I understand her humanity and respect that everyone has their demons, but not everyone should be a therapist. I am so disappointed and sad, and honestly, I feel like she shattered my trust. Mm -hmm. She's been my therapist for about six years. What's oh. worse is that she was really insistent on having a session anyways. She called me three times, kept texting me, and would have keep texting me that I would have her full attention and that she was sorry. She even brought up parts of my home life and apologized, saying she knew why this event would be so triggering for me. It feels like betrayal at best and downright illegal at worst. Mm -hmm. I'm sad, very sad. I'm angry and I feel violated. Rebecca, what do you think? Yeah, the therapist should not have done that. They should have just said, I'm under the weather and I can't make our session today. I'm so sorry. And then they should have texted all that other stuff to someone else, maybe their sponsor or a friend or their therapist, uh, because they're clearly not in a place to work. Yeah. What do you think about the therapist trying to cajole the client into actually having a session? No, 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 no. No, the trust is broken at that point. Yeah. I mean, they are begging. They're trying to backstep. Back, what's that called? Backpedal? Backpedal. They're trying to backpedal at that point and be like, nothing wrong, nothing to see here, but they've already broken the container. Yeah. And you can't put that back together. Well, also, if you're that intoxicated, how are you going to be an effective therapist? Yeah. So, yeah. what I would say is that's awful for the client and I'm sorry that happened. I don't know any way to get out of that because you know normally if a client if a therapist does something like this you can have a conversation with your therapist and say hey I felt this way. But this shows the client at least while intoxicated lacks judgment, lacks the ability to know how to proceed in the best interest of the client, right? It yeah. also sounds like the therapist was kind of in a shame spiral and like mm -hmm confessing to their client and then also backpedaling and saying like, well, no, no, I can do it. And please accept me, client, even though I drink. Like, why are you rejecting it? I don't know. It just kind of has that shame spiral feel to it. Yeah. Which tells me that this therapist is 
not only just impaired because of alcohol, but impaired because in general, because of their personality or their disorder or something's going on with them that would cause this to happen. I mean, there's so many things that have to go wrong that the fact that they drank on a day that they were working before they were seeing their clients, not only just drank, but drank a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember the one day, I don't know if you ever shop at PCC, but in the fruit section, they put alcoholic drinks next to the fruit. I didn't realize. <laughs> I thought it was just sparkling water. I Because I would... Oh, no. Yes. I would assume <laughs> you would say, like, this has alcohol in it, for those of you who aren't paying attention. And so I packed it in my lunch, and I took a big swig at lunch and was like, oh, crap. And I jokingly i told my next client because it was such a ridiculous story and they laughed really hard and it was only one sip but i was like oh you just had one sip yeah i mean it was a you know a gulp it was a gulp (laughs) um but needless to say it takes a lot of focus to be a therapist i personally can't do it on drugs and alcohol i can't imagine a being drunk in a session and then b trying to make my client make me feel better that's that says a lot yeah, so I think the if someone came to me with this, I would say report her not only for your sake, but also for other clients' sake and for her own sake, for the therapist's sake, because she probably, in all likelihood, would be sanctioned in a way that wouldn't eliminate her ability to practice, but would require that she get sober and go to treatment. Yeah, there is a state ethics board that you can... and this person probably has a a number attached to their state license and you can report it to that board. I've actually heard a story about uh, someone who was using extreme substances and went into treatment and was allowed to keep their practice, but had to go through quite a procedure in order to do so. Yeah. So that would benefit the therapist, the client and all the other clients. So that's what, I would recommend. And it's, you know, the board is there for those situations. That's exactly what they're there to do is to help therapists who need that help for the benefit of society. But honestly, I'm just trying to think what I would feel in a situation like that. If you were the client? Yeah. I mean, because they've been seeing you, they've been for six years. Here, I'll be the client. I I mean, it is such a breaking of trust yeah i just ask that you're there for me one hour a week that's all i ask yeah i don't have that a lot of other places yeah and you just messed it up so bad and i can't trust you again i mean that's the thing it's with addiction it's like if you've you know proved to me now that you're not going to use again and it appears that the therapist knew this would be triggering. Right, given client. their issues. Yeah. yeah. Now, if you're that intoxicated, if you're that in the throes of an addiction, judgment goes out the window in a million ways, including this. So that's not unusual. But yeah, I just, I can't, yeah, I can't imagine how I would feel. I, I think on one hand, I would feel absolutely violated and unsafe and unsure and I would wonder like were they intoxicated in the past in other mm-hmm. sessions you know it would really mess with my mind uh, on the other hand I think I would wait and see just given my personality and see what would happen to be like uh, maybe 
hopefully they deal with that. And then when we actually work with each other, we can return to a place where I guess I now know this thing about them, but I can get what I want out of therapy. Because if I'm going to a therapist for six years, presumably I like the therapist. Yeah, that's <laughs> a long term yeah. relationship. Yeah. So I think I wouldn't, if the relationship was good and the therapy was good, I, I think I would just want the therapist to deal with it on their own and for us just to get back to the mode we were usually in mm-hmm. where they were listening and I was talking and you know everything was kind of normal because there are in terms of me as a client I'm not terribly interested in my cl- in my therapist's lives mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like there'll be certain things that will emerge either through, through self-disclosure or just you know my my last therapist she in the span of our work together she became pregnant and had the child and was sitting in session maybe a week before she gave birth because mm. <laughs> you know self-employment you don't get mm. maternity leave right and she did not look comfortable mm. she was nodding off <laughs> which i totally understood you know <laughs> and i you know i just figured well i i, I don't I'm, i understand and i I just, I can't imagine what she's going through. I I feel bad for her that she has to sit through these sessions, you know, and and endure me anyway. And so I just wanted her to, I just figured she would deal with whatever she had to deal with and I was okay. And then eventually maybe in six to nine months or something, we'd be back to our Mm -hmm. kind of regular vibe. Anyway. Another Reddit post here says, feeling judged by my therapist. I used my own therapy client's first name during a personal session and she corrected me. I would like advice. I am a social worker therapist who works in community mental health. I have been seeing my own therapist weekly for five years. Last week, I was telling her about some very intense experiences I had I'd had recently with two of my clients. And as, as I described the experiences, I avoided using any identifiable information. So she's talking with her therapist. She is a therapist. The client's a therapist. She's like, there are these two clients and it's pretty intense for me. And eventually to keep things clear between the two clients, she says, I used one of my clients first name. Their name is very common for the record. So she's like, Jane, okay. or, yeah. yeah, Jenny did this, and then the other therapist, the other client was doing this to me. My therapist immediately said, maybe don't use your client's names, and I suddenly felt very judged and ashamed. I assumed that because everything between my therapist and I is... Com- this. So just chiming, <laughs> like when people use I as an object, you know, my therapist and between my therapist and I, does it just really gets to me. Now this person's going to feel judged not only by their therapist, but I felt really judged by Dr. Kirk on my Reddit post. I judge it. People like, you know, you went to you have a graduate degree, you understand the basics of grammar. You would never say, I assume that because everything between I is confidential, you would say between me is confidential. And Thank you uh, grammar police. Well, I'm not a grammar police individual it's that it's all the papers that i would read in graduate school and this would come up and i would say stop it anyway i assume that because everything between my therapist and i is confidential the fact that i casually mentioned my client's first name wouldn't be an issue because she can't legally say anything to anyone and my conclusion is that she thinks i am untrustworthy Mm. and irresponsible as a person This is absolutely not the case. I am very respectful of my client's confidentiality and have never shared identifiable information about any of them with anyone. Rebecca, what do you think? 
So I let stuff like that go in the session. I know that different people are different. So if you had a client that was a therapist and they were talking along those lines, you're saying you would let it go? Yeah, because I'm not going to remember it 10 minutes later. I think that as in therapy in particular, we get real nervous about ethics stuff, which is great, but sometimes it makes us kind of rigid. And if a client is talking through something traumatic, I think policing their language with things like this doesn't really help, Mm -hmm. doesn't help them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I am more chill about this and I would have not corrected the client. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, uh, what I'll say is the same. If, if, uh, If a client was talking about a client, and they said a first name. Well, I don't know what I would do, honestly, because I'm, I'm a bit of a stickler for that as well. Not because I would be concerned that the name would somehow reveal who the person was, but I would be worried that my client would, it would be a slippery slope or something. Mm-hmm. But I certainly wouldn't say it in a way that made the client feel shamed or something. Mm-hmm. I would just be like, oh, well, maybe we should just use like uh, nicknames or something mm-hmm. because... Um, I don't want to, I don't want to, I for, cause honestly for me is once information goes in my head, I sometimes forget like where I got it from. Oh. <laughs> now as a therapist, obviously it's pretty easy for me to keep everything straight, but, um, but also, I don't know, I, I would just say like, uh, let's, um, but I would totally, anyway, I would be very careful to not make the client feel weird mostly because I would feel like I was the weird one. You know, mm-hmm. I'd just be like, look, this is just kind of my thing. And, um, but I would totally understand if a therapist like yourself just didn't really care. And honestly, I can't remember the last time I ran into this situation, so I'm not even quite sure if my answer is And often accurate. I have quite a few therapists as clients, and often they'll be stumbling. And I'll just say, just use the name or unname. I won't remember. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, in supervision, that's much more of a common thing for me, and I actually will explicitly explain that in supervision, with where I'm the supervisor, supervisees can absolutely talk about their clients um, and use identifiable information because I'm their supervisor. Because um, some supervisees will be like, can we use first names? And I'll be like, well, this is supervision, so specifically, it's okay. Anyway... And if you've been my client, you might notice that I say your spouse or your husband or your oldest child, because I can't recall all those names. Names for me, I'll never forget a face till the day that I die, but names for me are like... (laughs) Yeah, I'm the same. They're like Kleenex. (laughs) Yeah, I'm the same. Uh, That's why I would actually keep notes on Mm -hmm. a genogram about spouse's name and keep it next to me so that I could keep it straight, or their dog's name or something like that. But yeah, I'm the same. I never forget a fate. I'll see someone from grade school at a in a public place, and I'll be like, I was in the fifth grade with that guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so yeah, I'm pretty good with faces, but yeah, I'm pretty bad with names. But anyway, so, but to address the issue is that it's not any, so say you were you were to do this and you were to be reported. I can't imagine anyone taking action against no, you I wouldn't at go all. Anywhere. Yeah, um, at the very at, at most, they would just be like, "Yeah, maybe just don't do that," <laughs> just to be on the safe side. But uh, I'm guessing most 
most people just be like, I don't see a problem here, really. Uh, but to be clear, there's no one exception to confidentiality like that. You can't tell, uh, you can't tell, you know, if I, as a therapist, go to my therapist and talk about my clients, I can't say, well, my therapist can't legally, the way she puts it, my therapist can't legally talk about things outside of therapy. One, that's not strictly true because if I reveal something, you know, if I talk about one of my clients, so say I'm saying my client, Jenny Anderson, I know a Jenny Anderson from high school. That's kind of weird. <laughs> that, I, But uh, my client, Jenny Anderson. I'm sure there's more than one Jenny it, Anderson. It, yeah, is abusing her child. Again, I don't even know if she has a child, by the way. But, but I wouldn't forget her face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and according to the law, my therapist in Washington State would actually have to report that and probably even say the name mm-hmm. because they have been told about child abuse to, you know, about child abuse. So it's not legally protected at all times. One, two, there's, there's not an exception to confidentiality that says you must remain confidential, confidential, except when you go to therapy, you Mm -hmm. can talk about, you know, there's, there's no exception. There seemed to be, I was even looking in the comment section, there seemed to be some uh, notion out there that you can tell your therapist anything. And that's just, that's just not true. Um, Plus your therapist is a human being in the world and could run into your client. They mm-hmm. might even know your client, but wouldn't know that until you reveal information that would identify them. And that puts everyone in a weird position. So, so there's that. Um, but the, but the most important thing is for this individual, if they were talking to me, I would say, well, just talk to your therapist and say, I kind of felt like you were judgy yeah. and, and it hurt my feelings. What's going on? And also how often does the client land on shame? And is this a dynamic Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as well, that the client seems to be, uh, you know, seems to be triggering something for them about their past. Yeah. And what a wonderful opportunity to mm-hmm. have some corrective experience in therapy, at the very least, where you can voice that you felt like, okay, fine, that's your boundary, but why do you have to come down that hard on things? Um, so let's see, I think another person was replying to this and they say a few years ago I was talking with my therapist about a client case that was triggering some of my own stuff not getting into specifics or providing any identifying info just mentioning the themes and the content of our work my therapist stopped me and said I am not in a position to be to be providing clinical supervision and I was completely caught off guard I was not asking for any advice on my case but just trying to process and make sense of the experience and how it was affecting me I felt super embarrassed and I completely shut down. It felt like she was scolding me and hadn't even let me finish what I was trying to say. Does all that make sense? Rebecca? Yes. What do you think about that? Uh, that's, yeah, came down kind of hard. <laughs> I think people need to process a lot of content. And I mean, another way that the therapist could have said that is, you know, we'll be sticking with the therapeutic lens here and I will, you know, you know, this is a supervision or something. Right. Because there's certainly a lot you can get into that's clearly not supervisory, right? Yeah. I mean, I will say what's interesting about the times that we live in right now is that I think everybody just feels kind of shredded and skinless, and anything can feel like an attack right now. I've really noticed that in myself and with other people. It's just, we're all just extremely fragile mm. right now. Well, that has to do with the next oh, good. Reddit post. <laughs> but before we get to that, I, for my own style, so 
there's different ways of approaching this. So I'm the therapist and my client, who's also a therapist, is talking about their clients. And yeah, the safest, I think, most appropriate road is to say what you said, which is like, oh, okay, we can get into this for sure, but just know that I'm not your supervisor, of course, and I know you know that. And so I, I can't get into, although I might kind of be provoked, I have to keep in mind myself as your therapist that I can't get into clinical material because you already have a supervisor. And so that's not what we're doing here. But I absolutely am interested in what you're talking about, which is the feelings and how you're doing and all that stuff. And as a fellow therapist, I could relate to a lot of things that you're feeling. Da, da. So that would be the safest route. But I will say that on this one, I'm a bit more of a loosey-goosey, boundaried person. If I have, and I have had, clients who are therapists come to me and talk about their clients and we get into, obviously, the emotional content related to their therapeutic goals. But if they started asking me questions like, well, should I do this or should I do that? I, I don't think I would have a problem answering those questions. I would tell them, by the way, I'm not your supervisor, <laughs> you know, so we're at this moment, I'm just, you're just consulting with another therapist. But because it's so hard for me to watch a therapist struggle. struggle when I might be able to help them, mm -hmm. you know, when I might be able to provide some knowledge or perspective or something. And so I would definitely couch it as that of just like, so I'm not telling you this as, as your therapist, because this isn't a therapeutic thing, but I will tell you as a fellow, you know, it'd sort of be like if someone came in and said, I was going to put up some drywall in my house, you know, I, I, I actually have some stuff to say about drywall and, and mudding and sanding and all that kind of stuff. Um, I might provide some advice on that. Uh, but I'm not going to say, by the way, I'm your foreman <laughs> and you have to do it this way. And also you shouldn't really respect my opinion on this because I'm not a <laughs> professional with drywall. Um, you know what I mean? Or if someone had questions about how to take care of their cat or their dog, right? I just think I'm just more loose about stuff like mm -hmm. that. I'm, I just, I, do, I don't, I just don't care. And I'll often say that, like, do you want my advice? And people will say yes or no. And then I'll decide if I want to give my advice. Right. So let's take a break. We'll get back more Reddit segment. What do you say? More Reddit. So we're back from the break. Rebecca, I yes. got you a new chair. Just oh. We, we got to talk about the whole story of the chair. So Kirk has a nice chair. America. I don't think you would like this chair. Yeah. Um, but World, I, I, not even America. Global audience, just know Kirk has a good chair. Why wouldn't I for like it? For co-hosts. We're talking about... You, so side note about okay. my chair. I bought this chair at the Jewish secondhand store on Mercer Island. Mm. Have you been there? Oh, yes. Yeah. I bought it for probably like $35, <laughs> and I've spent $2,000 reupholstering it wow. twice. Wow. It's expensive to reupholster because yes. you have to put new pads in. Yes, I'm reupholstering a chair right now. Oh, it's it's like crazy expensive. It's like much better. just. But I cannot buy, I cannot find a regular, the regular office chairs that you can find are just not right. I want They're something that now. is... This, this this chair that I've been, and I've been using it as my therapy chair for 23 years, and then it became my podcasting chair as well. I, I love this chair. There's a lot of chair. wisdom in that. I might have some questions for the chair. <laughs> 
it uh if you're trying to imagine it it's it's wood frame and then it has like a faux leather upholstery thing it just looks like a a chair that you would find in an office in the 50s i guess it's not a swivel chair it has four legs that are firmly (laughs) on the ground which is a big thing and it's also pretty wide butt space because when i sit i fidget a lot and so i and i and there are arms so i always need the arms and like at Antioch, I would always, because they changed the seats at Antioch. Mm-hmm. You know, the old, our old building, the standard chair for everyone was an arm, was a chair. It wasn't very comfortable, but at least it had arms. Mm-hmm. The new chairs in the new building, none of the chairs have arms. They're just these rolly, flimsy chairs that look like Ikea things. But there's one chair in every room for people with back pain. Right. The good and, chair. And it's a good chair. It's very comfortable and it has arms. And when, as long as no other students took it, I'm like, I'm going to pull my mm-hmm. p- professor prerogative. That's going to be my chair. But anyway, so years and years have passed with various different chairs for the co host. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, it was just basically any chair I could get my hands on because I didn't have any extra chairs really in the house. And in the very beginning, it was There's like. There's been times I've podcasted with you on the floor. Yeah. Back back in the day, yeah. But uh, we were bare bones, people. Yeah, when you were doing your episode about uh, square the circle, I remember. Yeah, we, we were, were on the floor on my carpet. Yeah, uh, and so uh, for a long time, it was literally an, a flimsy IKEA chair that's like probably eight dollars or something, and not very comfortable to sit in for hours while you're podcasting. Right then. You would complain about that chair, so then, so that, which is fine, by the way. Uh, which honestly, I totally get because I'm a very, I'm a very, and I'm sitting here for like it's two hours here, people. Yeah, I'm a very. Uh, but I heard Umberto is not a complainer. He doesn't complain at all, but, you know. So he's the main, and Bob as well. So mm-hmm. Bob and Berto are like whatever the opposite of a complainer is. That's what they are, and it's, so they never said anything. You need one Jewish lady to complain on your show. Well, about the you're chair. normal. I, because I, I, if I were you, I'd just be like, "Can we get a? Can we get some? Just a cushion?" And so you would come in, and you you'd instantly complain about the chair, which I got. And then, so I got what I believe to be a more comfortable chair is one of our one of our cushy dining chairs, mm-hmm. and you didn't like that chair either. <laughs> And it's not like, think of a dining chair. It's like, it was very, it had a pretty big cushion on the butt. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a big, when I go to restaurants and I'm sitting in a, in the chair and it doesn't have a pad for mm-hmm. the butt, you know, it's just like at some restaurants, it's just like a metal chair. That. I will write a Yelp review specifically <laughs> about how shitty, the, I mean, you're spending, you know, I'm not talking about some <laughs> corner restaurant. I'm talking about like a nice Italian restaurant. Uh-huh. I'm like, you're, sp- I'm spending how much money? To, I, you don't have cushions mm-hmm. for chairs, people. Like, come on. And so I, uh, I'm a pretty, so I get it. But you were like, this isn't comfortable enough. And then I started giving you a pillow to sit on in addition. And you're still like, yeah, this isn't good. <laughs> And then, so I'm like, okay, well, I guess I can, it makes sense, you know, now, now that I've set this whole... Right, so if you could see this room, the accoutrement is massive, yeah. and I think the co-host should have a nice chair. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I... Is this a Seinfeld episode? I'm I specifically, <laughs> uh, I specifically, when we were moving into this house last year, I was like, okay, I'm going to get the perfect office. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always been basically cobbling together a podcasting station that was just in the corner of my space. You know, I just sort of like, well, I guess we'll podcast here temporarily. But I really wanted to get like a studio kind of setup, you know. And when you were like, you should have a different chair, I'm just like, yeah, well, I could actually get a permanent 
co-host chair. So we were at West Elm. I love it. And we saw some chairs that were good for our living room. And I was like, this is a, an extremely comfortable, good looking, trim kind of concise chair and i'll just buy a third one but because of the supply chains it took a year for it to arrive but it's finally here so rebecca how does it feel what's it's the verdict amazing it has my favorite texture which is like kind of a nubby velvet it's also in one of my favorite colors kind of a seafoam green and I'm wearing a burnt umber pants, so it's a good, the whole thing is a good look. Very 70s. It's very 70s, and it has a good cushy back. This is real important to me, um, that the back is real cushy. I think that's why I didn't like the dining room chair. Right. And then it has arms, because it's like, what am I going to do with my arms? Yeah. And I think also all of this comes from me, For someone would Google alana gusman podcasting she podcasts like fully reclined and like this amazing chair with this mic and so that was my fantasy of what podcasting should look like but i feel like this is a fantastic middle ground mm. and um and but it was funny i mean i remember when you were chair shopping and you sent me the photos and i just like imagined the next time i walked in here the chair would be here and just like everything in covid don't plan and eventually the chair shows up yeah have we reached the yes. final destination for the chair? Yes, we are saga? in chair parody. We are we are chair complete. Okay, I am happy with the chair. You know, I've been looking a, a <laughs> long and hard and check in every month. To, is it here yet? When is it coming? And for those who are interested, you can go to West Elm and Google you have a matching chair. Google the Carlo chair. Oh, Carlo. It's what it's called. And I got the brass feet because mm, I'm, I'm getting into brass. I used to be really into like silver fixtures, but I'm starting to get into brass now. And also got the, the, yeah, the seafoam green kind of um, velvety because you can, you can choose whatever upholstery you want out of like 30 different styles and stuff. So we got that style because it fits kind of our style, but also because it probably will hide dog hair. <laughs> Because our dogs, the dogs are very light, you mm -hmm. know, white colored. And so you, I can't wear black anymore, essentially. Yeah, unlike this shirt, which is covered in mochi hair. Yeah. And I just try and... Although mochi's like kind burnt of... Burnt umber. She's the color of the... Mid-brown kind she of, would yeah. go better with these pants. Well, I'm glad. I will say, though, that that chair, it, I didn't realize how heavy it was. Mm. And thus... It's like a couch. So what now that it's there, it's not going anywhere. It, you can't move it back to like get out. So it mm -hmm. has. To, so that's why when you sat down, you're like, I'm so far away <laughs> because I can't put it under the desk because you would never be <laughs> would, able to get in. I'd have to take my legs off. Yeah, to get but in I find chair. you know you could just sit. now. I'm used to it, but it was weird to sit down and be like you were an extra two feet away, and I yeah. was like, you're so far. Like yeah. it was visually jarring, and that's how sensitive I am these days to yeah. change. Uh, side note, another thing I was, you know, testing out these new microphones for the first time, and I have been avoiding using the standard microphones for this podcast for 14 years because I'm a bit of a microphone nerd. Um, in fact, the microphone that, that I use normally is the microphone that you will see on a lot of talk show host desk. Mm -hmm. The one that it's not turned on, but like the Jimmy Fallon's and hmm. the David Letterman's, they will ha and Conan O'Brien have this Audio Technica. They have the exact mic that I have. Not uh, totally coincidental mm -hmm. that uh, the the mic I love the most 
So I've been avoiding this sort of standard basic. It's not cheap, but it's a standard basic. You'll see it on every podcast if you look on YouTube. But it doesn't have all the bells and whistles. It's just kind of a cone. It's yeah. just kind of a solid cylinder versus the other one looks more like you'd be singing something important. Yeah. Which makes me want to share I brought you a present today. I don't oh. often... I don't often get to see your face light up with sheer joy. Oh, right. But before we go into that, because that's a whole story in and of itself, (laughs) um, a nice benefit to having these mics is that they pick up less room noise and less I can have my window open for you because I know you like to have the curtains open Yes. so you can see outside because normally I have to keep them shut for sound Mm -hmm. echo reasons. But anyway, yeah, so let's get to your gift. A few months ago... You knew that I was getting into records, or maybe you sent me an estate sale notification or something. So if if you don't know what an estate sale is, it, all it's the actually, dead people's things. Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting, and sometimes I'll cry when I'm walking through people's people's houses. But essentially, either the old individuals will die, or I'm guessing maybe they're going into a home or something, mm-hmm. and the children or a business will come in and sell everything in the house like absolutely everything yeah everything little knickknacks um th- those food. those weird yeah <laughs> literally like a half drank bottle of wine <laughs> i mean honestly or really great stuff as well like nice jewelry and art and also records and so i was building my record collection back up and so rebecca's been taking me around seattle very st- getting me into the culture and so i i caught the bug and i was going around but a lot of the places that I go to, um, did I tell you about the the estate sale that I waited in line for? Stacy and I, we actually got there early, and there was a huge line, kind of like that one we mm-hmm. went to on Beacon, but it was bigger than that. And by the time I got in, I was like, where are the records? And they're like, oh, it's downstairs. Totally packed house. Get downstairs, and just as I'm about to look at the records, this guy is like, oh, no, no, I'm buying, I'm buying all this. I'm like... Well, which ones are you buying? He's like, no, I'm buying all of it. And so Don't I'm like, kill my vibe, dude. And I'm sure like, oh, well. I, I waited and I got down here. I waited in line. <laughs> da da da. He just swooped in and bought, and it was probably I don't know hundreds of wow. of records. And and so they're taping it up so that he can kind of carry it. And he's just like, how am I going to carry this? And I'm just like, I don't think you're going to carry it. It's too, it's too heavy. It was just all one big box. And so anyway, the um person selling was like do you want to look at them first before you buy the whole lot he's like he's like no that's okay and i'm like so wait he didn't even look Mm -hmm. at the records he just bought them without even looking at what the records he was buying because a lot of these estate sales have some really crap records in Mm -hmm. there you know what i mean um which are sometimes fun but oftentimes not (laughs) um and then he also said the next thing he said was i wouldn't know how to evaluate the value what Anyway, yeah. So, what? Who is this? What is he going to do with them? Well, so what's your theory as to why? I mean, so some people sell in such bulk online that it's worth it to them. I mean, it makes me worry that he's doing like some art project with records and doesn't really Oh, right. Care. Did we already talk about this? No. Oh, because that's what I came up with. I was like, it, maybe it's an art project. That's so funny. I swear to God, I've already talked about this. We haven't had this conversation yet? No, but I'm going to retell the conversation that we just had, which is my father has had this block of records that he hasn't listened to I believe since 1980. And um, 
he's turning 82 this year. And Packed with a bunch of good yeah, stuff, Yeah, I'm right? sure there's Kiki D records in there. There's old Bob Dylan. So I said to dad, I want all your records. My dad is like the most generous, distracted person. You actually kind of remind me. Like he would just give you the shirt off his back. Um, so then he writes me and says, now the neighbors want the records, but I'll give them to you first. So immediately I write back as the classic jilted child and say, I was first, give me all the records. Yeah. And then I sat on it for 24 hours and I felt bad. And then I said, why don't we FaceTime? I'll tell you the records that I want because he has to ship them up here and it's going to be expensive. But I'm sure he has like the original Sticky Fingers album with the zip mm-hmm. cover. And, you know, he's probably got albums in there that he doesn't know are worth like $200 a piece. Yeah. Well, he, correct me if I'm wrong, was in LA at San Francisco in the 70s. Oh, San Francisco in the 70s. For some reason, I thought he was in. He, had the, he was an um, actor. He had many friends in LA. Oh. But there are just these... But he was like hippie, San Francisco, that whole thing. Yeah. So you know his The record. music is really good, people. Yeah, right. Someone just asked me, like, what are you listening to? And I said, I've rediscovered this Phoebe Snow album that I didn't know about. Because I found it at the Austin Estate Sale where I found the Paul McCartney for you. And I've been listening to it nonstop. And like, Bonnie, any Bonnie Raitt album is amazing. Yeah, I've been um, seeing a lot of Bonnie Raitt. I love... You realize I, what people actually bought back in the day. Yeah. You'll see the same records. Like, there's this one Christmas compilation record with, with Babs and also White Christmas <laughs> and stuff. It, and I see it everywhere. There's a few other things where I'm like, I didn't realize this was so popular, you know? Well, and there was just a lot less to choose from, too. And then musicals, like we found this... Was I with you when we found Sweet Charity, the original cast album with... Was it... Gwen Vern, she's amazing. She was the muse of Bob Fosse. Um, I mean, and then once you put it on, your whole body is like transported back four decades and you're a child again in your living room wearing scarves dancing around. Like there's just something about records. It's the pops and the the effort that it takes to listen to the music, take it out of the sleeve, put it on the thing, put the needle on. It's so different than just like pressing a button. Yeah, I, so... I was so the record I got you was Paul McCartney Tug of War. We had that record growing up in our collection. My parents somehow bought it, and it it's like eighty four, eighty three ish. The biggest song on that album is Say 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 with Michael. So they did two songs together. The Every, girl, the girl is mine, is Say Say Say, and then they did Ebony and Ivory. No, no, that's that's Stevie Wonder. Oh, and so yeah, Stevie Wonder, hundred okay, percent. And so, so with Stevie Wonder and with Michael Jackson. They wrote and recorded two really uh, uh, four two great songs each, and mm-hmm. on one album was for one guy. So Stevie Wonder and Paul recorded two one al- one song was on Paul album and one song mm. was on a Stevie Wonder album. Same. So for Michael, he got the girl is mine, mm-hmm. which, which I believe is, is on Thriller. That's one of the best. Yeah, best it's a great song. song. And say 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 is on Paul McCartney's album, which isn't my favorite song, but the rest of the album Pipes of Peace or Tug of War is um, or sorry. It's not Tug of War. It's Pipes of Peace. It's the other album, Tug of War. Anyway, Pipes of Peace album. <laughs> Great album. Love it. Thank you so much. We played a little bit of it. Ringo Starr is on it. Um, I really love that album. So for me, I-, I was like getting back into records, but I was worried that I was just fine. Like there was a time when I got obsessed with the Atari 2600 because um, this would have been like 20 years ago. And because on eBay, you could buy your- the original Atari. Boom. And- 
and you could buy the because as a kid all i wanted was pong well no asteroids i had asteroids but i wanted all the games you know like i didn't know anyone that had more than pong and asteroids there were other games oh my god you didn't know about all the Atari. We're the same age. You I di- know. I just didn't hang out with people that did any of this stuff. Oh my goodness! There's hundreds of really? Atari games. That this is new information to you? Yes. Defender, Missile Command, <laughs> Combat, uh, Yars Revenge. <laughs> I mean the, the the infamous ET game that was no. a big bust. Anyway, uh, how do you turn ET position? into a game? It was terrible. It actually killed Atari. Uh, like. Atari was already kind of dying, but then E.T. came out, and we actually had it, and it was terrible. Anyway, point is, is that I bought an Atari 2600, I bought the controllers, I bought a bunch of cartridges, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to play Atari. I'm finally going to be able to play all the games I wanted. And I even had like a, I got a pad and paper to keep track of my top scores, you know? (laughs) And I played through the games one evening, you know, (laughs) with a couple friends and a couple beers, and I'm like, okay, that was fun. Played it another time and was like, this isn't actually very fun. Mm-hmm. And never played it again. Wow. So I had I had probably months of researching mm-hmm. and buying and getting, because you also, you also have to get those adapters. Yeah, I was like, what did you plug it into? Yeah, you have to get like a TV that has those, uh, a tube TV that has those. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and I was worried that the, the record obsession I was having over the past year would be the same. But now that I'm actually living the life as a, as a record hipster, I'm actually terribly enjoying it. It doesn't make any logical sense, of no. course, because I you have... You can buy these songs. Well, I have a pro account on Spotify, mm-hmm. so I can listen to literally every song at all times. I can even listen to an album if I, I could just say, play this album mm-hmm. and don't let me play anything else, you know? But it's a completely different emotional experience. Totally different. It's It just doesn't... F- and so... And what I found is... There's songs that you forgot about. Like I found right. Diana Ross. I can't remember what album it is, but it's the one that folds out. And But it was like, oh my God, there was a time before this song existed. Like there's more of an impact when you listen to an album because of the process that it takes to actually put it on. That the music, I don't know, it has more resonance yeah. for me. And then also you've got the liner notes and the Full, you know the fold-out album, and there's like it's such a bigger experience. Totally. So I'm really digging it, and thanks for getting me the Paul album. Anytime. And uh, with your dad's collection, you can't wait. Throw me a bone. That's all. Yeah. I'll say. Well, if, if the, the Sticky Fingers album is there with the zipper, you can have it. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's take a break. Get back. Let's actually get to this Reddit post. Okay, Reddit post. So you might appreciate this, Rebecca. When I saw this, I inst- this is this is the whole reason why I wanted to do this with you. It says, what exactly do you find stressful about this work? So this is on a therapist's, our therapist is the you know subreddit mm-hmm. therapist. What exactly do you find stressful about this work? It's no surprise that many of us are stressed and teetering on the edge of burnout <laughs> these days. So I'm interested in what exactly everyone finds stressful about their job. For me, it's mainly from being an introvert and feeling the need to always have the right thing to say and pressure from parents who expect instant progress and solutions with their kids. So any thoughts? So uh, there's a lot of different people chiming in, but what do you think about that one? And or what makes you most stressed out? Well, I can, I'd love to talk about what is currently making me stressed out. So side, side, back, back it up. 
Uh, so for the last 10 years, I have not done student informational interviews. I just needed a, <laughs> a break that ended up being a 10-year break. But I'm back in the saddle. Student informational interviews? Yeah. You know, like when a student writes you and says, I need to interview a working therapist. Oh, right. Ethics, blah, blah, blah. And I'm always just like, Ugh. about 10 years ago, I was like, I could never do another one of these. Yeah, I, I kind of drew that boundary a while ago, too. And all of a sudden, I felt like, oh. I'm not, I can't really volunteer the way my schedule is. It's so crazy. But here's a way I can easily volunteer. So I've been saying yes recently. So you know, a lot of people are going to contact you. Now. I know. <laughs> I'm also have, okay. All right. Um, I have time for one a week, people. So uh, this woman, the, the way the question was phrased was really interesting. And it was about inpatient services. And I said to her, you know it's impossible to get anybody in emergency psych bed in Washington State, right? And she goes, no, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh, no, honey, there aren't any services. So if your class is being taught that like these services like exist and like if your client's decompensating, you can like easily, they can easily be sent away. That's not the truth of Washington State. And so I would say what I'm most stressed out about right now is not actually the individual needs of my clients, but the lack of support in the system for low-functioning people that really need it and how much that stresses everyone else out. Mm-hmm. So that's and that stresses I, you out. It stresses me out because, it, because clients come in with problems that it would have been like, oh, in the old days send X person away and get them the really in-depth treatment that they need. There's nowhere to, you know, no one has the money. There's no beds. I mean, there's stories, I think it was in Island County that a kid was in the hallway of a ER for like 24 days or something. They had no bed for this kid. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was on that was on uh, John Oliver, I believe. Oh, it was? Yeah. Oh, right, he did a whole thing about it. Yeah. Yeah, so... That's what's currently stressing me out, um, which I guess is a relief. That's <laughs> not the individual. I've gone, ma- no, am I micro? No, I'm macro. The macro is stressing me out. But the, this work is hard. You'll never please everyone. Someone will always be mad at you. There's always more to give. You can never give enough. And then there's just, especially now since the pandemic, there's just endless clients. So I'm having this super messed up problem with my email which is that an email that I stopped using 10 years ago, but still would forward to me, the server died somewhere in cyberspace and it's now just dead. And so people are like, I can't get a hold of you. I can't find you. And I'm like, actually, this is kind of good. <laughs> like, you know, you really have to search me out. And many people do. They take the time to find me through my website. But it's just kind of interesting that um, I was kind of enjoying. But one of the things that happened was, one of the insurances is still using that email, even though I've updated it like 20 times with them. And in the middle of the pandemic, I was getting probably 15 emails a day asking for providers for mental health services. What, what do you mean? Uh, like the, clients uh, who are looking for a therapist? This is like an automated email oh, from oh. the insurance company saying this client with these issues is looking for services. Please mm-hmm. email back if you can. I would get like 15 of those a day. And now since they're using this outdated email that I've updated with them four times, um, I don't get those emails anymore. What insurance was this? Regents or Primera. Yeah. Yeah. 
okay, so let's read the, the next person. Next person lists a bunch of things. Or no, no, sorry. Let's just read each one and let me know what you think okay. about this. It's hard for me to hold. So this person's saying, this is what I'm stressed about. It's hard for me to hold space for everyone's trauma while working on my own. Mm-hmm. It feels like my whole life is trauma some days. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's real intense. Um, I recently, so we are in the high holidays of Judaism right now. And uh, for Rosh Hashanah, I have it. I was in person for services for the first time in three years. So it was all already very, very emotional. Part of all of the services of Rosh Hashanah are standing for the Mourner's Kaddish, which never mentions death, which is interesting. It's just support. And um, he said, uh, you know, if there's any names that you wanted to add and talk about confidentiality, all the names that came up were uh, friends and loved ones of my clients who've died in the last year because we've all lost so much. And I was just like, this is insane. Like, I forgot my losses. <laughs> Because I process those losses more than I process my own. Um, oh, I see. So when you're in your personal, uh, uh, you know, ceremony and being asked to personally talk about names of individuals who have died recently, the names that come to your mind first are your clients' loved ones who you never met, right? Right. Instead of your own loved ones, because it's... it. it, it you care a lot and there's a lot of pain going on with your clients. Yeah. So that was a sign to me of like, Oh, wow. What is it a sign of exactly? Uh, that I still have a lot of death to process on my own. And, um, you know, I probably don't take the time in therapy in my own therapy to process all the things there are to grieve in my own life right now. We had three of our close women friends, three, of their mother, three mothers died in a month. Wow. All of cancer, all very quickly. Um, and there, I mean, it was, you know, have you sent out the condolence letter? No, I forgot that one, but I remember this one. And like, it was just so overwhelming. Yeah. What do you think about trauma, though, in general? They're saying it's hard for me to hold space for everyone's trauma while working on my own. Yeah, it's a broader topic than lost. Yeah, I mean, that's where I feel lucky to have the sensory motor context which is that you do not focus very much on the trauma narrative and you focus a lot about what the body is experiencing in mm. trauma. What do, you, what do you mean? Tell, tell us. So in classic, the, I don't know how you were trained, but the classic trauma recovery that I was trained in was that you had to tell the story mm. of the bad thing that happened to you. And then after you told the story, you would feel better. And that's true for some people, but some people have so many traumas that that's not, they don't need to tell the story. And so what sensory motor would say, I, I'm just, so just, I don't know, say something to me like there was a fire or there just. There was a fire. There was a fire. So when you say that, when you say that there was a fire, where do you hold it in your body? Mm. Mm-hmm. And then we do that work. Well, I really hold it in my chest. Okay, let's take some deep breaths there. And then something bigger might come up and I'll say, is that a thought? Is that a body sensation? Is that a memory? So I'm not pulling for more content of the story. Mm -hmm. I'm pulling for more mindfulness about your reaction to Mm -hmm. telling the story. Mm. And having awareness and care for your body, time to feel it and notice it and talk about it. Yeah, it's very slow 
work. And then when we end the session, I'll say, how do you feel in your body right now? Trying to, to ground people. And this is the work of Dr. Janina Fisher. If you're looking to study with the best trauma trainer, I believe on the planet, she has something going through Pressy right now. I think it's like a nine month masterclass. It's incredibly expensive, but she's getting up there in age and she's probably the most experienced trauma trainer. She ran the back of the house at, for Bessel van der Kolk when he ran the front. She was actually training all the clinicians. Hmm. Um, so, you know, there's some great models in trauma treatment where you will feel less traumatized. Mm -hmm. Do you ever feel like it's hard to hold space for people's traumas? Like this person says? You know, I limit how many I do in a day. I try not to do more than five sessions on an average day. Still a lot. It is a lot. I, during the height of the pandemic, I was only working three weeks a month. I told my clients, it's just too much. I want to continue to be there for you. But in order to do that, I can only work three weeks a month. And they were, everybody was really understanding because at that point, people were leaving the profession in droves. Mm. Um, so they were like, I'm thankful I have a therapist three times a month. Uh, you know, this is not easy work. This is not for everyone. You have to have a full life. You have to have a hobby that brings you delight. You know, for me, it's making art and looking for records at estate sales. Like <laughs> yeah. you just, you know, I have the world's cutest dog. You know, I mean, I have a, a child that will watch any show on Disney. We, we tried to watch She-Hulk, Gaturini, at law. It was horrible, but you know, we laughed all the way through it. Um, so I kind of like the beginning. I didn't watch the whole thing, but I thought the first couple episodes were okay. I can't believe that actress who did Orphan Black and was one of the most incredible actresses of her time. Her next role is She-Hulk, <laughs> attorney at law. Like, yeah. The universe has gotten very strange. I forgot that a lot of therapists were quitting the profession during the pandemic. Two of my most favorite people stopped working. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like we need to document what happened. The mm. pan pandemic was so weird, and there were some things that were happening that were so specific. In fact, I... How about this? If you were a therapist who left the field in the pandemic, please write us. Yeah. We'd love to record your story, and we're really thinking about yeah. what the field has lost in this time. Right. What do you remember as to why people did it? Some of my friends who were older were like, this is too dangerous and I don't like the technology. I'll never, they didn't know if they'd ever work in person again. Uh, other of my clients just got, clients, friends got so burnt out that they just went and did something else. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think they, not only therapists, but I think that was true in a lot teachers, of Teachers, nurses. Yeah, because it was so... It's sort of like when you go through a divorce or a death or something and you reevaluate, like, wait, what am I doing with my life again? <laughs> and you are suddenly faced with this underground growing dissatisfaction maybe anyway. Because mm -hmm. it never crossed my mind to not be a therapist during the pandemic. You know, it never crossed my mind to change my career because I think I, I liked my career. You know what I mean? Well, I guess I take that, well... But you switched up too. I mean, you yeah. you went to more podcasting and basically stopped teaching. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, I still teach every now and then, but yeah, I mean, I was full-time at the university, so I guess I'm completely lying right now. 
Uh, and I'm here to keep you honest. Yeah. But I had been seriously thinking about going full podcasts for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I re- and was actually planning on quitting full-time at Antioch a couple years prior, but I would get like a good batch of students mm-hmm. and I'd be like, oh, maybe I'm just being too uptight about things. And, uh, you know, I can endure for the students. And then there'd be another string of of bad situations and I'd be like, okay, definitely. And then I resolved to myself, I said, okay, give it another year or two. Mm -hmm. If you, if, if you feel more often annoyed than not annoyed Mm -hmm. (laughs) after that time, then maybe it's time to go because I I couldn't tell if I was just overblowing the occasional annoyance, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Because I became such a prima donna at the university because I I was the only one there that had been there that long. Or you know, I remember when we were. Yeah, I mean, aside from Ann Blake and Ned Farley and Janice Oshino and maybe a couple others, I was I was the only one that had been there a long time. And I had this other gig, the the podcast that I I could, you know, I felt less stress about. You know what I mean? So. But yeah, when the pandemic hit, I was, I, and especially since the the podcast did a lot better, I'm like, oh yeah, foregone conclusion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is this is over. I'm, you know, maybe I'll go back one day. But and I, I still teach. I want to teach. But yeah. So, all right. Next. Um, well, and I'll just piggyback on that. I mean, the tarot workshop mm. came through for me big time, and I went from teaching two workshops a year to teaching six and that's huge Mm -hmm. and it was you know the pandemic i came up with this wacky idea i'll teach therapists how to make tarot cards what Mm -hmm. (laughs) and people were like yes that's what i want to do um so yeah i think it changed a lot of people's lives Mm -hmm. yeah more time on our hands to think the stress by yourself (laughs) well i think also the pandemic highlighted stresses you know, I, I'll never forget when I was in graduate school, because of course I was raised in a misogynistic culture that framed, uh, you know, menstruation as that time when women were mm-hmm. crazy kind of mm-hmm. a thing. And I remember a professor in, in graduate school saying, well, yeah, I mean, another way of looking at it is that women put up with so much shit all the time <laughs> that when they're menstruating and, and they're quote unquote hormonal, it's the time when they can't take the shit anymore mm-hmm. and they start to speak up and i remember thinking wow you know that, that that's absolutely another way of looking at it and with the pandemic i think it highlighted the shit in our lives right because if you loved being a therapist then you would tolerate the online nature of it but if you were burning out severely on being a therapist then the online nature or the increase in stress in all of our lives would highlight like, yeah, I don't think I'm into it. And I, I think for me with teaching, it was that way. I, I love the students and I love the teaching part. It was just all the other stuff, you know, that just the meetings and the paperwork and the, you know, they were always adding new paperwork things. And I was just like, oh, I just can't, I, I can't do it anymore, you know? And the pandemic really highlighted that. So I think maybe that was a factor. And plus when you think you might die, and people around you are dying. Right. It really makes clear what is important and what's no longer worth your time. Right. Is it worth it, really? Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I mean, while you were talking, I was thinking it was the opposite that 
I knew if I could go back to working in person, I could continue to be a therapist. But if it was going to continue to be this online thing, there's just the feedback loop is so broken. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, the art is the best part. Like this, I was at an estate sale and they had moon sand. Do you know what moon sand is? It's pumice mixed with wax. And it's like sand, but it kind of has, a, it's a lot less messy. And I just bought a pack of it and I bought it into the office and clients have been using it all week and like playing with their hands. And It's the kind that sticks together. Just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, this is why the work is great. Because like there's a client playing with moon sand the entire 3D. 3D. Yeah. Talking, destroying, building back up, putting it back together, clearing space, filling it in you know, rewiring their brains through play. Like, this is the fun part for me. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to have to look at a Zoom screen all day, my eyes are going to fall out. Yeah, well, side note, that's why early in the pandemic, I actually, now that I think about it, I never, I never use Zoom with my clients. Mm -hmm. I, I only use the phone. Primarily because I hate Zoom for therapy because of that reason because of the lag and just having to stare at a two-dimensional screen and there's no eye contact but also because all the clients I had had I've been treating for at least five plus years mm -hmm. and thus had enough knowledge of their voice to be able to detect body, you know, because we lack body language when we're over the phone. Mm -hmm. And so, but I knew the clients so well that I, I, and I found over time that it didn't really diminish the therapy at all. So that's what that's what I did. But yeah, if I if I had to do Zoom, and that was a big kicker also for teaching. I mean, teaching over Zoom was just such a, it just. I, I realize for some professors it's not that big of a deal, but I think for professors like you and me, who create that, environments, you and, you and I, I didn't say you and Ooh. I, uh, professors I like you and me, um, I think that it's almost impossible for us to even get eighty percent of the fulfillment both for professor and student if we're hmm. if we're over zoom you know it's just such a and i remember when we first started doing it i'm just like well this should be fine right i mean for a month or two well not only that but it it, it, it full on snorted yeah <laughs> but i thought it would um not be that bothersome but you know i what i quickly realized was that a big part of teaching for me is that the ability for people to chime in essentially mm -hmm. and when you're on zoom everyone mutes their microphones because they're trying to be polite and thus the lectures just turn into me yammering the whole time without any chiming in or or someone just kind of going huh you know like those little things are what make this job fulfilling to me is mm -hmm. those 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 interactive 3d eye contact body language moments you know um, like a big part of uh, my model of teaching is I always would organize the the tables and the chairs in the shape of a U if it was a uh, if it was a didactic class because then I would sort of roam in the middle of the circle mm -hmm. and I could actually if someone asked a question I could actually go right up to them on the other side of the the U on the inside of the U you know and I could sort of pace around. Whereas on Zoom, I have to just sit there and it, it just doesn't feel good. Anyway, another person said that they became burnt out lately. They say, emotional labor in the sense of having to perform emotions that aren't congruent with what I'm feeling. Mm. 
hiding annoyance and anger, feigning empathy when I'm not feeling it. Any thoughts on that? That's burnout right there. (laughs) It also sounds like the person, I mean, it's like, what's going on? I mean, if it's just burnout, okay. But on the other hand, it's like, do you understand how alarming that is Mm -hmm. to you as a clinician? (laughs) Like if you're feigning empathy or hiding a a fair amount of annoyance and anger, uh, like, what are you doing? There's so many other ways to deal with that, right? You could, you could say, I'm annoyed with you right now. Right. Or I'm having a hard time finding empathy right now, you know, or I don't know, or just don't feign the empathy. Just listen with sympathy, I suppose. Yeah. Or just be there with them. Yeah. Right. But then the next person they say, uh, so they have a whole list here on this person, devoting my life to others. What do you think about that one? Hey, are they Catholic? God. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I don't know if I devote, I mean, I do live a life of service. Like, you know, I'm not, I have friends that make a whole lot more money than me. Um, but, uh, you know, I turn the clock off and I get my time to myself in the right. evenings. So I'd say you're devoted to your yes. clients and to your profession, but you're not. I keep de- showing up. But you're not devoting your entire life to no. your clients. Yeah. Um, yeah. No wonder they're hiding annoyance, anger, and not feeling empathy because there's no room for them. Another another bullet point here for the internal pressure to fix them and change everything. Oh yeah. Change everything quickly. Yeah. This is certainly like someone who needs a good dose of supervision and help with this. Social. So let's just. Pack, unpack that one for a minute. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love the quote for therapists. You should be working half as hard as your client. Like if they're not working, they're not going to change. And there's tons of reasons that people can't change. They don't have a support system. They're working two jobs. They, you know, have this burden or that burden. Maybe you're not with them in a time of change. Maybe you're holding space for them and eventually they'll stop seeing you and then they'll change. So this idea that you're a therapist to see all your clients change and get better is loaded. Yeah. When you take all these bullet points together. I didn't realize this was all the same person. Yeah. It, then you're thinking, oh, this person is in desperate need of some help. Um, their next bullet point. There's so much to learn, which is also fun, but sometimes it can feel hard to be an expert when new things can pop up. Even when we specialize, we kind of are experts on human existence. Anything can be therapy material. I don't even know what that sounds good. I think, I mean, things really do change. Somebody was just asking me, what are all the ADHD meds for adults? And I was like, I don't, I can't keep track of that. <laughs> like, you could well, just Plus, Google it's not that. really your expertise. Right, you can just Google that one. But, right, I mean, things are changing all the time. If you like things to stay the same, being a therapist is not for you. Like, you know, things are constantly changing and the pandemic has changed a lot of things. I remember I was taking this class and the guy, the teacher was talking about when to refer out. And I had a moment like I just had earlier in our conversation when I was like, there's no one to refer to. Like there's no, there's no referring out at this point. Um, so yeah, there is a way. Did you say that? I said it to him because he was teaching a class as if that was an option and I got kind of pissed. Yeah. And what I, do you, what do you say? He was like, well, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, <laughs> well, what I, do you mean? I got to hear blah, 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 this. Blah, blah, blah. So wait, what kind of class was this? It was a psychodynamic continuing education class. Online? Online on zoom. 
and I. It was like Q and A period, probably. Yes, sounds like Q and A period. And he made a statement about, well, you know, and when we refer out. And Did I, he seem to be jumping to referring out a little quick? No. Oh. But I just wanted to. But I just needed to say, hey, I just need. I don't know if other therapists are feeling this way, but right now with some of the clients I'm seeing, it's either they see me or they wait four months. To and not four months, but for several months. Yes. To find someone that has an open spot. And even then, that therapist might not be a good fit and da, da, da. Right. Yeah. And so, so what did he say? I can't remember. They kind of stumbled. There's a cl- We've worked with this kind of person that is not participating in what the current system is like and is not aware right. of what the current system is like. I don't think he was ready for my question. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If he was working in the current system, he would be like, yeah, totally get that. And yet some situations, maybe we should try or something like that. But I'm guessing his answer was like thinking from a place of like, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. Like, it's like thinking from a place from 30 years ago or something right. when he used to work more. Or even five years ago. Yeah. Uh, another thing here. Right now in private practice, building a caseload is stressful. Okay. Um, although I'm finding with novice therapists that I know and have worked with, they're not having any problem building a caseload these days. <laughs> yeah. Because of, the need is so great. Because the demand is so great, but also because of things opening up to online mm-hmm. therapy, people are much more uh, likely. But you can fit it in in the middle of a day. Yeah. And it's less of an annoyance for clients because they don't have to drive and da da da. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing here is certain, this is more bullet points from the same person. Certain settings pushing CBT or behavioral models when they don't suit you is stressful. Feeling like you have to prove your work in your documentation. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So cognitive behavioral has become the law of the land and it doesn't work for every client and then you have to go to your paperwork after the session and fit it into cognitive behavioral language and it's hard it's no fun it takes the fun out of the work there are ways to do it and i'm it was damn good and i taught people how to do okay, it okay good yeah there are I ways was like you have your six i would this is how i would teach it i would this and this is back in the day I don't know. We were still handwriting notes. I was like, use these six words, have these six words sitting on a post note on your computer and just use two of them in every note and you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the model is, that I would teach similar, I think to yours is you don't want to reinvent the wheel every time you're no. write, writing a note because no one, someone's, I would also say, I'm interrupting you like no, crazy. Please. <laughs> I would always say, Remember who your audience is. Your audience is not a great clinician. Your audience is an auditor that barely understands what we do. Yeah. And they're just skimming anyway. Yeah. And and long, specific, individualized notes are annoying yeah. annoying to them on some level. Yeah. One, um, two sentences. But yeah, very, very quick and to the point. And feel free to recycle sentences because... Yeah. What's the chance that every session with every client is like completely unique, you know? Right. And um, also, and as, as graduate students, I understand, like, you know, we would write 40-page papers right. and think we were supposed to be great thinkers. 
And we get out in the field, and unless you're continuing to do academic writing, which like 0.1% of us do, your writing life goes to writing these stupid two sentences over and over and over again. Right. It is demoralizing. If you think of it as a representation of the glorious work that you're doing in therapy, whereas if you just think of it as this is the busy work that I have to do that has um, you know, a usefulness to it, mm-hmm. uh, but it's extremely limited in its usefulness. It's not a representation of what I did. It's not a res- representation of the depth that we went into. It's not a re- representation of the vast emotional twists and turns that the client went on and me too, frankly, as a therapist, but it is uh, what I need to document um, for a lot of different reasons. The, the other element that I would add is you're not fraudulently writing a note. You're actually accurately describing what you did within the CBT language, but it's just not necessarily how you're always thinking. You know, you don't have to make up or lie and say, you know, we worked on these three cognitive techniques. It's like a lot of therapy is, uh, you wouldn't think of it as CBT, but it actually is CBT if you if you think of it that way, looking at it from the outside. So you just have to document it in that way. Right, and it's, you know, you're addressing self-esteem, you're addressing black and white thinking. You know, I mean, there's all of these pretty basic things that we do at least once in every session. Exactly. All right, the last book. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) The last bullet point from this individual, life, death, the life, death nature of the field, depending on your clientele. Working with suicidal clients can Mm -hmm. be stressful. It's not so much for me because of experience, but it still takes a toll to have that weight. Thoughts Mm -hmm. on that? Yeah, I mean, it is, that is difficult work. I try and frame it in the sense that we are doing everything we can to support that client and we're using all the skills that we have. Um, You know, and I think most people's biggest fear in this work is that a client will suicide. Um, And for the clinicians that I know that it's happened to, it is absolutely devastating. It's also for the average clinician, not that common. It's not, it doesn't happen, at least in my work, every day or even every year. Um, Have you lost clients to suicide? This is going to sound crazy. I've never lost a client to suicide. Yeah, neither have I. I've lost clients, clients have died for other reasons. I'm trying to think of any of my, it's been so many years. It must have happened out of my awareness, obviously, a past client. Oh, no, no, yeah, I had a client that died from a young woman who died from an overdose. Mm. Um, so that I did have a client that I was supposed to intake that day and he killed himself oh. that morning, but I hadn't mm-hmm. met him yet. Mm-hmm. So that felt, that felt like something, right? Cause I mm-hmm. had gotten to know the intake over the phone a little bit. And so it felt, but I was like, well, I can't be responsible, right? Because mm-hmm. there was no indication of that on the intake. So, um, but yeah, I'm not surprised. I, I, I think it's, I, I, well, I guess it is surprising given the clientele that you attract and typically work with. But I also, in private practice, I um, will let people know if you're suicidal, I'm not a great clinician for you. Oh, really? Especially now, because I'm 
out of the office more and more during these trainings. Do you do that at screening? Mm -hmm. So someone in the beginning says they are, they suffer from suicidal thoughts. You'll actually recommend they seek someone else. Yeah. I'll just say, I'm just not that available. Like um, time and energy and yeah, that required to help someone be safe. Yeah. And when I teach a six hour training, I purposely don't go on my phone because I don't need any content to knock me off my game. Mm-hmm. I'm a method actor when mm-hmm. it comes to my six hour presentations. Yeah. I need to be there yeah. doing that. Yeah. I don't know. For whatever reason, for me, I think it's a, there's a pro and a con to this. I've never really been affected in this way. Like if I had had 10 clients that had died by suicide while I was treating them over the past 25 years, I mean, I don't know how I, obviously it would impact me, but I don't know if it would really burn me out. I mean, maybe I'm wishful thinking, but. Well, I think you and I are similar in the sense that we understand what we offer people. Yeah. We offer people a window of time to potentially touch in with their greater sense of self. Right. I'm not fixing anyone. I'm not solving anything. I'm potentially making things worse by <laughs> pointing certain things out. <laughs> You're um, going to need a therapist to deal with <laughs> me. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm also incredibly present. I mean, when I think of the amount of time that me and my clients laugh together. So with this with the, with this laundry list that this person has, I can tell like where's the fun part? I mean the fun part for me is when clients and I laugh together, when I notice who made their clothes because of the color and I guess right and they're so touched that I knew that or human experiences. Yeah. You're alive in the room. You're not just there terrified of trying to fix someone. Right. Yeah. I am, I mean, that is, and that's what sensory motor really taught me how to do is like, just be with someone, just be. Yeah. <laughs> and if they're ready to change, they'll change. And and that attunement dance is most of the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's just a few more. We're running out of time, but I just want to rattle through them because I'm a completist. So no more from this person, but going on to some other people. Next person. And Brett, they get stressed out, burnt out lately because as a therapist, they are having trouble embracing the ambiguity. Hmm. Am I being effective with this client? Yes. Was this client sending me a message by canceling at the last minute, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Thoughts on that? Yeah. <laughs> if, uh, this was a Twitter feed recently. What has COVID taught you? And I wrote, never never make plans. <laughs> or, but it, like never expect plans to work out. Um, and that there is so much ambiguity right now you don't, you could, I mean, so I've had clients no show and it's funny what goes through my mind now. Like, oh, maybe they're hospitalized with COVID. Like, I mean, it's like horrible things that would have never crossed my mind. It, before, if someone would have no showed, I would have been like, oh, God, it's all about me. You know, because COVID has been so life or death, it's really made me, things don't feel like they're that much my fault or that much related to me because so many bigger like you know maybe they've got a relative in florida and they can't get a hold of them and they're like trying to figure that out like it just feels like there's so much to worry about right now that's beyond me that i'm just you know most of my clients show up most of the time and i'm kind of amazed have you got the booster i have had covid oh right 
I need to get it at the end of October, and had, I need had, to plan to be out for two days. So you had Omicron, <laughs> right? What did they call it? Omicron. Omicron. You call uh, it Omicron. Yeah. And yeah, I'm Omnic- scheduled to have the booster and, pretty soon. But. And I just did we talk during my Omicron? It was that virus is super vicious. Tell us. I had, I mean, I wasn't hospitalized, but things that were happening to me, I got pretty delirious and I started laughing so hard and then I started coughing so hard that the dogs were staring at me like, is this it, mommy? Are you go- is this how you go out? Um, I could only eat popsicles and pudding. Because of the pain? Because, yeah, I just couldn't tolerate that much. And I built up to bone broth. My neck. So pain in your throat? Yeah. Um, I immediately lost my sense of smell and I've not gotten it back. You haven't gotten it back? I mean, I can smell really intense things. There was something that was very chemically on these new mics that I could smell. I can smell mildew. <laughs> I can smell fire. So like when the fires happened, I could smell that. Uh-huh. I can smell rotten cantaloupe at the grocery store. So all bad things. Mm, I could smell basil. Okay. Um, but it's, it's not great. Have some people never got their... Some people have never got their smell back. It does make you crazy. I will say that. You look at something and you're like, <laughs> like this, I know this smells. It does make me worry that like my ha- house will smell like dog pee and no one will tell me. Yeah. So please, if you come over and it smells like dog pee, please alert me. Okay. Um, so how lo- just to get people a timeline, yes. how many weeks ago did you first have symptoms? So this was at the towards the end of July. And we're at the end of September, early October. I was out for, I was totally out for a week. So end of July, so all of August, all of September. So two months, over two months ago yeah. was when you had the first bit of it. Yeah, and, and then the post-COVID fatigue was so intense. So as a parent, I think those of you who are parents will relate to this, you know, when you're a parent, like everything your kid does wakes you up. Like they come in, they come out, you, you know, even when you're sick, you wake up. And there was this morning where I was testing negative, but I was still so exhausted. And I woke up at 10 or 12 o'clock and the house was empty. So everyone had left the house and I was so deeply exhausted that I didn't even hear all of those sounds that have kept me alert, all of these, you know, just gone. And then later in that week, I slept twice. I slept through two very important meetings, not client meetings, which I think is interesting that my body was preserving me to work with clients. But they were just like other important things that I needed to do. Just completely slept through them. Um, So that was a trip. And I started getting, I I found a treatment that works for me now through naturopath. But uh, it was pretty scary. And I realized... So what was scary? Like at the peak, what was the, the coughing fit? Was that the... That was really, really scary. Because you couldn't breathe? Yeah. I mean, it just... You feel like you're not in control of your body. And it you just feel very small. And the fatigue is so intense. But I realized I'm so terrified of the brain fog. Like, if I didn't have my my cognitive wit, that would be devastating for yeah. me. I'll take the fatigue Yeah. over not being able to put a sentence together or track what I'm thinking. And that was actually a Rosh Hashanah. There is a prayer of like, here I am, God, kind of take me as I am. And I was sitting there crying because I was so tired, but I was like, you know, thank you for letting me keep my brain. (laughs) Because if I didn't have my brain right now, 
I mean, I understand why people just, they lose it with this, if they've got long COVID, because you just feel like a prisoner. And even my Western doc was like, yeah, give yourself three months of the fatigue. I was like, three months? Um, and I just had to finally believe her. And like last night, I slept for 12 hours. Um, so it, and, and the other thing was, if I push myself too far, I get the shakes and they're like these ratchety shakes and I just have to lie down and there's nothing I can do. It's like my body's completely spent. Hmm. So I'm taking potassium, but it's... Did, so at, it's it was scary. Did you, how, for how long of a period of time were you sitting there thinking you might die? I never thought I would die, but I was like, this is the sick. I've heard lots of people say this. Like, I've had the flu. This is the sickest I've ever been. Mm. And there's a difference to it. Your your different systems are getting hit. Your My lungs were getting hit in this way. The fatigue was like nothing I'd ever experienced. And I've had adult Epstein-Barr. Like, you know, I'm used to feeling tired, but this was like, I cannot move. And when I got the shakes, it was like, I can't get out of bed. Like, I'm afraid to walk. Um, and I've never had a virus have those kinds of symptoms with it. Hmm. But your brain was still working. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's still working now. And for that, knock on wood, I'm... What was it like to see your clients during that time? Uh, I When I had the shakes, well, I did cry my first client that I had to explain, like, I have long COVID, I will be, you will know, like, I'm, I apologize in advance if I yawn. And then I just started crying. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Luckily, she was a therapist herself. It oh. was very understanding. Um, but I got better at the speech after that. Um, yeah. But I had a weighted blanket on me and... I just didn't move a whole bunch. And, and it actually felt good to work in that sense of like, oh, I'm human. Yeah. Um, but that's all I could do. I would work and then I would go home and sleep. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah. And so it's services. Rosh Hashanah, up, down, up, down, up, down. I don't know if other religions are like this, stand, sit, stand, sit. And about 20 minutes into a two-hour service, I realized I can't do this. And I just sat. I was like, I, I want, it's more important to me to make it through this whole service I'm sure God will forgive me if I don't up, down, up, down, up, down. <laughs> wow, that's intense. I mean, you were telling me this in pieces, but I didn't know how intense it was. It sounds awful. It's awful. This is a, and, and. Because I feel like we've, a lot of people are just like, oh yeah, like Stacy had it. A lot of people got it in my circle a few months ago and were, it, they barely noticed it. Right. Like if they yeah. didn't, if they weren't, hypervigilant about COVID, they would have thought they weren't even sick. They just thought, well, maybe I just am a little tired or something. Like a slight scratchiness in her throat and a little bit of confusion one day. So uh, I think, but I do hear stories like yours. And, and mine's mild. Yeah. So I mean, there are people I, I think, who can't work anymore. Or? Yeah, we're like, we're and long COVID, as mm -hmm. you're saying. And I feel like we need to remind ourselves of the reality of this virus yeah just be gentle with yourself and if you've if you've got it just really rest it's okay to rest it's really the most important thing that you can do and, and get, it's going to impact and get our vaccinated culture and, get, and get vaccinated and it's going to impact our culture in terms of there's going to be i don't i mean they think there's like a million plus people that are going to have long covid mm -hmm. it's a new disease it's a new long-term debilitating disease yeah i mean we're already 
getting access to data about all sorts of psychological, physiological, economical, political impacts of this event for people. And so, yeah. And it's not over, really. And there could be another virus that could come out. Yeah. So, and from the experts, like, if we had a horrible pandemic, SARS-CoV-2 is, like, a good practice run because it's mm. not as bad as other, like, Ebola or other kinds mm -hmm. of viruses that are much more deadly and da-da-da. So... On that depressing note, science. <laughs> but I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're better. I'm, glad I'm back. It took me two months to get here. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you like the chair. The chair really helped. I'm glad that I drink a lot of water. I'm glad that people sent you gifts during the 14th, and you got a chance to acquire those. I'm glad you brought me a Paul McCartney album that didn't have any skips, by the way, and it looks like an original copy that was in a house say, with a lot of smoking. Say, you could, you could kind of see the smoke oh, you uh, can. stain on the outside. I don't know. I don't know if I'm just imagining That, that house but... was a party house. Oh, was it? That oh. house had a party room. Oh. All the records were downstairs, which is clearly had, this is back in the day. This is in the 60s. It had like a mini bar. Yeah. A lot of the houses that we go to, the lower floor has like a functioning kitchen. A mini bar. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Party. You know, like I think of red carpets mm -hmm. and wood panel walls and... Maybe, Maybe some gold pool. flocked mirrors. Yeah, gold. That's what they call it, gold flocks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad nice. you're back. And maybe we'll make a habit of this. Actually, so if anyone out there wants to send us some Reddit posts some Reddit to talk Reddit. about. And I can't think of Reddit without thinking of Serena Williams because she's married to the founder of Reddit. Is really? That, is that correct? I don't know. Don't ask me. Anyways, thinking of Serena Williams, did you watch her last, her last match? Uh -uh. It was unbelievable. Yeah. I'm not a tennis person, so I don't know anything about it. The fight, the determination. Yeah. Keep going, everyone. Yeah. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because... Really, we, we love you and we love doing this. And the more you're around, the more we get to do this for you.